Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of Weepa Podcast. Uh, today we were joined by Aaron Warbritton of The Hunting Public to talk about their uh, somewhat recent experiences with heavier arrows and using higher FOC and stuff like that. Uh, we had a great time talking with Aaron. He's a super down-to-earth guy, and The Hunting Public's content is absolutely second to none. You should definitely check out their YouTube channel and their podcast. Uh, they've been doing some stuff recently with Troy Fowler, aka the Ranch Fairy, and uh, they just recorded an episode with Rob Nielsen of the Ashby Bow Hunting Foundation. So be sure to go check that out. Don't miss out on that. Uh, as always, this podcast is fueled by Hunter's Blend Coffee. Go to huntersblendcoffee.com and get yourself a delicious bag, or now they do like K cups. Uh, uh, I mean, you can consume it any way that you want. Uh, like I've mentioned, my days are very long right now, working in IT, everyone going remote. Uh, I am burning the candle at both ends, and uh, man, Hunter's Blend has kept me going uh, in, in times where I did not want to, to say the least. Uh, so go to huntersblendcoffee.com, uh, and when you're checking out, use code ABF, all caps, uh, and 10% of your purchase will be donated to the Ashby Bow Hunting Foundation, and you know how much we love the ABF. Uh, if you guys like this content, uh, please feel free to quick us, uh, quickly drop us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out, gets some more exposure. And if you want to buy some merch on our website, that's really cool too. Helps us out. Some of this stuff uh, isn't exactly the cheapest. So, anyway, without any further delay, here's Aaron Warbritton with the Hunting Public. Enjoy. So, uh, uh, Aaron, I, ha- I have to be honest with you. There are two people uh, on this podcast that don't particularly care for turkey hunting and it's not and it's not me and it's not you uh so uh, but poor guys i know right yeah pretty much (laughs) i know uh uh but you guys you guys just wrapped up a a heck of a a turkey tour this spring uh how uh how'd all that go for you it seemed like a a red letter season thanks it was a it was a blast as they all are um we didn't get to travel as quite as much as we were hoping this spring just because of the, the COVIDness everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. we had to make adjustments on the fly, but we still managed to stay in the woods pretty near every day for about two and a half months. So yeah, man, that's awesome. How many, how, how many states did you guys hit up? Um, as a group, I'd say probably 14 or 15 total, maybe Jeez. more than that. Nice. That's a heck of a swing. Heck of a swing. Did you guys yeah. get down to Florida by any chance? No, we didn't, but we had initially okay. planned to. Um, that right. was one of the one of the changes we had to make due to the virus. We actually we started off in Mississippi in mid March, and right about then is when all of you know all the craziness started happening. Yeah, yeah. So we were basically kind of stranded in Turkey Camp down in Mississippi. Didn't really know, you know, back at that time, nobody even knew what how bad it was going to be or how much it was going to spread or anything. Right. So yeah. we were getting, we were nervous to even, you know, get out on the interstate and travel very far. So we were yeah. like, well, we yeah. can kill three birds a piece here in Mississippi and we got enough food, water to just sit here and camp and turkey hunt every day. So that's what we did. Yeah. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. Do you have a, uh, or uh, Garrett, did you, you have something you were saying oh. earlier? I was just going to say that I feel like if I could figure out how to kill the stupid little things and have their tiny little bird brains not outsmart me every time, I'd probably like turkey hunting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they can, they're deceivingly smart sometimes, but, and then other times you're like, oh, that was the easiest hunt I've ever been on. Those stupid haven't happened yet, Matt. 
They're yeah, just well. skittish, and they got they have got a heck of a good survival instinct because they they, they got a ton of predators, unlike deer, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which have fewer predators, you know, but a yeah. bigger brain. So it's you know there's kind of a trade off there. So turkeys yeah. can just be so dadgum skittish and can just beat you on the on the premise of survival. Yeah. But if you throw a if you throw a halfway decently painted decoy out there on any given day, they could see it and come running in there and beat the crap out of it. So oh yeah, it's it's a, it's a ton of ton of fun for sure. Was yeah. there uh, was there a certain memory that stuck out more than uh, uh, more than another one that uh, kind of sums up this past season? I don't know, man. I mean, every day in the woods. I know that sounds like a cliche, but. Every day in the turkey woods in the spring is is awesome. I mean, yeah. every single one of them. The ones there, there was a few of them that were just classic, you know, eastern turkey hunts in the timber, coming in goblin, looking mm-hmm. for us. Those are the, I mean, those are those are the hunts that that are my favorite. I mean, I got oh, yeah. to hunt with my dad and film him shoot a bird on the home property. That was pretty sweet to do. That's, that's we awesome. had a lot of, a lot of fun that morning and had several other just textbook hunts, you know, with, uh, you know, my brothers here at THP with Ted and Jake and Zach and Greg and Mindy and all of our other friends. Um, uh, that honestly, that last hunt of the Turkey tour with, our buddy Corey O'Day up in Minnesota. That was that was one of the best hunts of the year, and that was our last morning in the woods. Yeah, you know, and we're always sad to see turkey season go. At the end of deer season in January, it's like a marathon, and we're just worn ragged. Usually, yeah. it's the middle of winter. We're half sick, and <laughs> it's like okay, it can end any time. <laughs> right, but right. With turkeys, man. It's it's like once we get into mid to late May. And we're just traveling north as all those states are closing down. We have fewer and fewer places to go every single day. And we know that we're coming down to the end. It's, uh, we almost hunt even harder during that yeah. time. Yeah. Just because Sense we're urgency. trying to yeah. squeeze the last bit of fun out of the spring that we can. And that was, that was our last morning for most of us. Yeah. So and we all went, we all hunted together that morning in Minnesota. And it was like, we all knew like that was pretty much going to be it for the, yeah. for the whole spring. So we better make it a good one. And it was a great hunt. Yeah, that's cool. That's super cool. Uh, well, for those who haven't figured out yet tonight, we are hanging out with Aaron Warbritton. Did I say that right? Is it Warbritton? <laughs> yeah, you actually got it right. That's, hey, look, that's look at that. Amazing. I don't know what it is about this podcast, but we have like a habit of finding the people with the weirdest last name so i feel like every podcast where we interview somebody i have to ask them how to say their last name so i'm i'm glad i glad i got that one uh uh right right that time uh yeah most um, people so, call me aaron, or they uh, they've said aaron warbertron many times there's all kinds of all kinds sounds of like different a tra- sounds like a tra- transformer oh yeah <laughs> oh man that's funny uh well uh and aaron's with uh, the hunting public um you guys have been been around for a minute but we'll we'll, we'll talk about that here uh, a little bit later so uh i guess tell us a little bit about yourself i don't uh i i know what state you live in but that's that's about it man i'm just a redneck dude from missouri small town called paris uh, oh yeah okay yeah with you know 30 or 40 people in my senior class sure and uh yeah 
just grew up hunting and fishing and knew at a young age yeah. that that was that that was what I wanted to do pretty much yeah. with with any of my spare time yeah just a woods rat just always out there parents having you dragging dragging you back inside oh yeah before I had a driver's license I'd ride my bike down the road to the to the public land and listen for turkeys every night that they'd be gobbling you know as well before season even started I would just go down there and try to roost them every night <laughs> mm-hmm. just to see if I could get them to gobble um, yeah yeah uh, just anything in the woods. I mean, I grew up hunting small game, waterfowl. We've done all. If you can hunt it or trap it in in Missouri legally, we've probably done it at some point. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. I know. You know, being a Missouri born and raised guy myself, I know there's there's a lot of cool opportunities here. Uh, and man, I guess uh, kind of off topic, but they uh, um, uh, what was it? Was it this morning or the day before? I think it was the day before. Uh, they announced the five people who got drawn for the Missouri elk hunt. Uh, unfortunately, I was not one of them. Uh, There's five total out of twenty thousand entries, so my one in four thousand chance didn't uh, didn't pull through on on that one. But uh, yeah, now now we're gonna have gonna have elk, I guess. So, have you ever been down to Peck Ranch since it's uh, since it's been a thing? Uh, no, I haven't. And I, I wish I could get in on that draw, but I'm no longer a Missouri resident, so. Yeah, yeah. You can go buy yourself a 20-acre track of land so you can get in on the uh, uh, the landowner uh, draw. I guess they, they do one landowner and four four regular residents. So I think I may yeah. have to use my use my grandpa to put in, put in for that landowner <laughs> tag. Uh, but, uh, uh, so did your, your entire family hunt? Was that kind of a, a family thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my uncles, my cousins, they all hunted and fished. I mean, my dad, he hunted and fished. There was just, and a lot of my dad's best friends that I grew up with at deer camp they all hunted and fished all the time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I was around it from a young age. And when I, I can, some of my earliest memories of childhood when I was, you know, four, five, six years old and staying at my grandparents' house on the weekends while my dad and my uncles would hunt. If mm-hmm. one of them was to go out and shoot a deer, they would come back in and get us and we would go out and blood trail with them. And I, awesome. there's lots of pictures of me and my little cousins sitting in the back of pickup trucks with deer, you know, back in this would have been in the early 90s right um you know so it's just been part of my life ever since i was a little kid yeah yeah that's awesome uh so how did i guess what was the transition did you have any uh uh, like professional experience that kind of like led into uh, like creating what is now the hunting public did where you did you go to school for marketing or, or film or anything like that or how how did that transition happen uh well i did end up going to school in, to media school for about a uh, two semesters mm-hmm. and i took i didn't end up getting a full-blown bachelor's degree in media because i just i basically wanted to take the classes that I thought would help me with filming and editing hunts. And yeah. then that was it. You How know, college like is a, supposed to work. Crazy thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to take all that other crazy stuff that they, you know, were trying Ma- to tell me I take. needed to yeah. have. Yeah. I, en- <laughs> I ended up getting a, a degree in natural resources rec management, which is kind of off topic and unrelated to what I, to what I do now. But 
to answer your question, there wasn't really a transition for me. I was really lucky to know what I wanted to do at a young age. Mm-hmm. And through the support of my family and just being plain stubborn myself, I just always believed that's what I was that's what I was gonna try to do. So when yeah. I was like when I was like 10, 11 years old, me and my cousin would sit in the house and we would watch Monster Buck tapes and Night in Hell and Primos and Drury, all those. Mm-hmm. We just we we had a whole bookshelf full of those tapes. And we would go through them. This is before DVDs, you know, and this is even in the before outdoor television even really came around and eventually sure, yeah. that that became a thing. But at the time it was just tapes. And we would watch those those tapes of guys filming their hunts and whatnot. And I remember when I was 11, 12 years old, you know, using my aunt's video camera and going out in the yard and trying to figure out how we were going to film a hunt. So right, right. <laughs> that was, you know, 20 some years ago now. But yeah, uh, from that age on, that was always just kind of like a, one of my priorities. It wasn't like my sole priority all the time. You know, right. in my teenage years, going to high school, got a job, you know, playing sports occasionally and then going to college and you got other obligations and whatnot. So, but I guess I just kind of dabbled in it mm-hmm, from that mm-hmm. point forward. I eventually saved up enough money and bought my own video camera. Uh, I taught my dad into letting me put a hundred dollar editing walmart editing software on his work computer basically at home (laughs) there you go there you go and started loading my footage onto that and experiment with trying to edit stuff it was just it it was about 400 steps that occurred over the course of a decade and a half or so that eventually led me into the industry and you know lots of failures along the way i got told no many many times but that right. was just always what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I guess I was, I'm lucky in that respect that I knew that from a young age. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what were you using in those like real early days? Were you using a like a VCR uh, uh, or a like what would that be like a VCR tape recorder uh, video camera? What what was that? Uh, there were many DV tapes. Um, okay. So- <clears throat> Some of those old cameras just had a disc in there that you recorded to, mm-hmm. and then you had to plug the camera in with the firewire to the computer to download the old the firewire. Oh, yeah. And back then, when I first started, uh, some of the bigger outdoor companies, you know, media companies, they were using beta, those great big beta cams and stuff. Uh huh. If yep. you talk to guys like Cuz Strickland, they'll they'll tell you all about toting those heavy big beta cams around the woods. And I only oh, yeah. had to film with one yeah. of those uh, once. It, yeah. Um, but that's what I eventually that's what I eventually bought when I was fifteen was a it was an over the shoulder mini DV tape camera. It was terrible awesome. and low light, and it was heavy. <laughs> And the battery life sucked, but it, uh, that was the one I filmed the first handful of hunts off of old SD footage. Yeah, <laughs> man, that's, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. It is kind of funny going back and looking at stuff like that. I know I've not, not even necessarily hunting videos, but I've looked at videos that, you know, I either like took or was in or a part of in like some way, shape or form from, 
you know, back in like my early high school days, you know, parents filming like wrestling meets or stuff like that. And I'm like, man, this, this looks horrible. But, but back, it's back crazy, then when you were, yeah, but that back then when you were looking at it, you're like, this is incredible. And then now you're just like, I can't believe we actually watched this stuff. Oh, that's funny. That's uh, so how did, uh, so, I mean, you're, it sounds like, you know, like you said, you knew what you wanted to do from a very young age. Uh, uh, how, how did that blossom into the hunting public was, was it originally like, is the hunting public now what you originally thought it was going to be, or have you guys like gone a completely different direction? And and I guess, uh, like, you know, how, how'd you pick up, uh, the whole crew along the way? Um, well, I can give you kind of the short version, um, because it's a long story. Uh, <laughs> Whatever version you want to give, it doesn't matter. It the hunting public today is is what we have. Well, I mean, it's starting to grow into what we what we were hoping it could possibly be. Um, but basically, several of us met through Midwest Whitetail when I when I worked there. I worked there for seven years and uh, did a bunch of semi live online video editing and production stuff. And I met a lot of these guys that are now at THP through Midwest Whitetail and throughout the industry. I've I've met lots of other friends and whatnot that have helped along the way. Um, Countless, actually. But Mm -hmm. met all those guys there. And the one common thread from the get-go with our group is where we all have different personalities. We're all unique people in some way no different than everybody else i guess but all of us are what you would what you would call your average hunters you know jake is from wisconsin he grew up hunting on a tiny little piece of private land with his family going to gun season deer camp with his family and hunting small private properties for the most part ted grew up in eastern iowa hunting public land behind his house with his old man me, I grew up hunting public and private land, little parcels of private land, knocking on doors and stuff like that when I was a kid with my cousins. And Zach hunted public land with his family and friends in Ohio. Greg's the same way in Nebraska. I mean, we're all the, we're all as a group, just your typical average hunter. Sure. I mean, yeah. And at with with your average circumstances, we yeah. You know, none of us grew up with a lot of money to to get in on some big hunting lease or right, go right. to outfitters nonstop. I ain't saying there's anything wrong with that at all. I'm just saying, like, that's the way it was. Right. So we decided that with the hunting public that uh, we wanted to create uh, basically videos that motivated people to get out in the woods and and have a positive experience regardless of their circumstances right the hunting public is supposed to represent the general public that hunts it's not doesn't have anything to do with public land really the name doesn't it's just we thought of we thought of the phrase the general public because it gets thrown around in in today's culture all the time you know sure well we're like well we're the general public that hunts just like everybody else you know for the most part so that's why we called it that and uh it's relatable yeah yeah. that's that's been our mission from the get-go is to show people 
positive experiences in the woods with our friends and family, right? To show people why it is that we hunt um, and what gets us excited about going to the woods all the time. Yeah. So do you think you were at that point, and I guess maybe uh, the question would remain, uh, were you targeting like non-hunters and, and getting them interested in like trying to tell the story of, of that, that kind of enjoyment that you get or, or was it more tar or were you trying to target people that may have like done it before, but they hadn't really dove in? Just everyone, anybody that has an interest in hunting, whether you are experienced or not. Uh, we, we felt like we could relate to those people because, you know, we've, we span a broad spectrum amongst us all. We're from all over the place and we all have, you know, we're at different stages in our hunting experience. Yeah. So it's just one of those deals where we felt like we could relate to just about anybody that had an interest in hunting. Yeah. Including yeah. new, new folks. Well, and that's what we wanted to show, especially potential new hunters is that, look, you can do this stuff. You don't have to have a lot. You can, you right. can go out, you can learn to do a few basic things, go get some help from, you know, these different resources. And then you can go and find some public land or knock on somebody's front door and go hunt and have yeah. a great experience. Whether you shoot a big buck or not is besides the point. Right, right. Well, I think you're, I think you're definitely hitting your, your goal. I completely, uh, uh, forgot about it. I just now looked it up. Uh, uh, Garrett, Rob, remember when we were, we all went down to, uh, Dallas Safari Club convention, uh, yeah. instead of ATA. I wish it was, uh, uh, on different weekends. Well, I guess it's going to be this year. Originally it wasn't, but DSC oh. just got pushed back to February. So, yep. So now both of them should be considering options. ATA actually happens. Yeah, True. yeah, we'll we'll see if that happens. But when we were sitting there, we were kind of every night we'd get in our uh, Airbnb and we'd look at like all the stuff that happened at ATA that day. And I just remembered when we were when Aaron was sitting there talking about all that that Aaron was the uh, w- one of the winners of the Impact Award uh, for, uh, handed out from the uh, Archery Trade Association. So congrats on that. It sounds like obviously you. You, I mean, it sounds like your goal was to make an impact, and it sounds like that's exactly what's happening. Thanks. We're trying. We got a long road ahead. We got. Yeah. We got to continue to build hunting and hunters across yeah. yep. the across the landscape, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a tall task. But um, it is. It is. When you look at the well, numbers, like it's it's, it's it's yeah yeah. It, it, when you look at the numbers, it's it's uh it's going to be a, a tough road because oh, hunting yeah. numbers are, are dwindling and, uh, uh, zoomers, I guess they're called now, whatever the youngest generation, uh, just isn't terribly, uh, interested in the outdoors. Um, or as much as, you know, our generation and the generation, you know, above us. And, uh, it's, um, uh, it, like, like you said, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough road. Um, so I, I don't know, I don't know what the exact story is. I know. So we've known Troy uh, uh, Fowler for a long time. And uh, I think it it might have been. I can't remember exactly what I think it was the fall or maybe it was the I think it was right before the fall. And he called me and we were, we were talking about something else completely different. And he said that uh, you guys got connected 
And he started talking to you about some of the stuff that he had been doing and some of the stuff he had, he's been working on, you know, recently, and especially now with ABF. Uh, and uh, that you guys wanted to have him on. And then when you like had this initial conversation, you thought, oh, like if we if we have this conversation, like right as deer season is starting, it's going to throw a wrench in in everything uh, uh, because people are going to be sending us messages and trying to change their setup last minute. And and so you kind of sounds like you may have initially put off what that uh, initial big conversation looked like. So what what got you guys going on this like heavier arrow, higher FOC kind of uh, uh, mentality? Like what was the origin story for that? Oh, it's his fault. Don't let him tell you any different. <laughs> it's, it's all fault of the ranch ferry. We, Jake's buddies in Wisconsin heard him on a podcast. A long, uh, it's been a while ago now, well over a year ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, they switched to heavy FOC single bevels. Mm-hmm. And they killed a handful of deer and stuff with them. And were, were, they were telling Jake about their experience and just like this is it's it's actually pretty incredible what they were seeing you know with penetration and pass-throughs and funky angle shots and things and how they were what type of performance they were getting right they jumped in the pool head first as soon as they heard troy and they started talking about it so jake brought it up to me last summer and uh He's like, there. he's on this podcast. We ought to listen to it. So one night about a year ago, we sat in my house and we listened to a whole podcast with Troy where he dove into all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was like a come to Jesus moment in the house. I mean, we were just <laughs> all sitting around. I, when know, the light bulb comes on, it, it can oh, be a little bright. It yeah. was, it was like, and that's only happened to me a few times in the last 15 years or so hunting. Yeah. With anything hunting related. One was when we talked to Greg Litzinger about buck beds. And then when we talked to Dan Infault about buck bedding and mature buck mm-hmm. habits in relation to pressure. And the other one was when we heard Troy talking about heavy arrows. Yeah. Pointy hat was in full tilt at that point, as Troy oh, likes to say. Oh, yeah. And he was in, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys know he's got a heck of a personality. So, yes, oh, he yeah. Was, <laughs> You know, we're hearing this crazy guy talk about all this stuff, and he's laughing real loud and everything, and we're cracking up in the in the living room listening to this. But all of the things he's saying are making sense with what we've been seeing, because mm. we've been shooting light arrows and mechanicals for years. Right. And they work. I mean, we were killing deer with them, fine, but we were also yep. having a, having the occasional weird experience. It just didn't make a lot of sense until we heard him start talking about it. It's like that, what he just said happened to me. And yeah. then, and then another guy in the room is like, yeah, that same thing happened to me once too. And it's like, <laughs> okay. It started making sense at that point. And then we, and then we pretty well dove into it head first after that. And yeah. Well, I know. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like it, it worked for you last year. Uh, uh, so was this last hunting season kind of the full, like the first full season that you were able to implement those kind of setups? Yeah, I have a, I have a long draw length and, uh, I've shot heavier poundage for the last few years. Just mm-hmm. one reason or another, just that's what I had, but I was already shooting a fairly heavy 
balanced arrow, you know, an mm-hmm. upper 400 grain arrow. Yeah. And yeah, I wasn't yeah. really having too much difficulty with deflections and whatnot beforehand, but I had switched from mechanicals to slightly heavier fixed blades. But when we heard him talk about that, we dove straight into the heavy high FOC stuff. I built an arrow that was around 600 grains with, you know, 270 grains in the front and, or maybe just slightly more than that. It was somewhere around that. And that's what I hunted with last fall was, was with a single bevel broadhead and, just to see what what would happen. Jake and mm-hmm. I both started on, down that road, and then Greg switched halfway through the season <laughs> to that. Um, so, yeah, we've got limited experience with it, but we've killed a handful of deer with those setups now. Yeah, and work working out for you for the most part? It seemed like it in the videos. Yeah, yeah, so far so good. Um, it, there, it, it's not a magic trick, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it's actually, you know, one of many things that you need to be worried about as a hunter, but, uh, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense from what we've seen in the last decade on, you know, marginal hits and whatnot. We've just seen a lot of issues and equipment failures with mechanicals and light setups. You know, and at the right. time, I just thought that that was just the nature of the beast. Like, sometimes arrows don't pass through animals. But then we got to talking to the dog trackers that were going on hundreds of tracks every year. And they're mm-hmm. telling us, like, and, and this wasn't one dog tracker. It was, like, five different guys that right. have blood trailing dogs from across the country that are all saying the same thing. They're all saying that they're finding more dead deer on pass-through hits. So mm-hmm. it's like, man, even if I did double lung that deer with, you know, my mechanical broadhead and my lighter arrow, if the arrow didn't pass through, you know, why is that? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because there's not enough momentum, you know, to, to get it through there. Yeah. Which is yeah. what we were all used to shooting. But that's why, like I said, I mean, it would... It'll, it'll certainly work when people hear us talk about this stuff they tend to go to the extremes they're like oh you don't have to have an 800 grain arrow to kill a deer you know we're not hunting <laughs> right, water right. or they yeah. say well you know you don't have to have a 300 grain you know whatever he calls them twizzler or whatever <laughs> to, <laughs> right to shoot 400 feet per second either no you don't i mean either either end of that spectrum and everywhere in between can kill deer but we just had many many bad experiences um with well those, and it's with those setups. it's one where as you start using stronger components stronger more structurally sound heads your weight kind of creeps up on you right so that's just kind of a natural but as you're changing those things in the vast majority of cases, you're gaining confidence in the equipment for when those, you know, those oddball situations occur. Mm-hmm. So it, you're no longer questioning like, man, like the last one kind of turned on me a little bit and and the broadhead broke or, the, you know, whatever happened. Now, no, I mean, when you, you know, that can still happen. Now when you happen. turn loose of it, you know where it's 
you but know, whatever the, it's hitting, it's probably going to go straight through it. Yeah. And that's yeah. where from a confidence aspect, that's one thing I think a lot of people don't consider enough. Yeah. Because when you're lining up on an animal, if if the back of your head is sitting here running through these what ifs, what if it turns? What if it ducks and I hit shoulder? You know, what if this? What if this? You're not focusing on your shot. And right. because of that, you're more likely to make a less than perfect shot. So now if you if you step up your arrow and your components and stuff, you're more confident in the kit. You're going to be not worried as much in the moment probably make a better shot and things are gonna go better i'll tell you right now since i've been shooting the heavier stuff and this goes even even back a couple years before we dove into the full-blown single bevel you know super high foc stuff when i was shooting around a 500 grain arrow just a couple of years ago and i i i had killed a couple of bucks with it and passed clean through them um, with just a, you know, your standard 125 grain three blade fixed head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At that point, when I was starting to do that, I noticed that, uh, like you said, I started gaining confidence and the next, the next couple bucks that I killed, I don't know, around 2015 and 2016, uh, those deer, I remember there was like two or three of them there in a stretch where I took shots at these deer fairly close and i actually missed i mean i did not i did not hit i got nervous and i've shot too quick i didn't take my time i was full-blown buck fever it happens every yeah Mm -hmm. but because i was not afraid of that shoulder or that leg i was not thinking about any of that stuff i was still far enough forward on the deer that even though I missed my mark by an inch or two, I still, I still smoked them. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, I wasn't worried about, I wasn't concerned in that moment to get the absolute perfect shot behind the shoulder, you know, two inches above the crease and an inch and a half back, nothing like that. I was just worried about putting it through there where his lungs and his heart is, regardless of whatever everything else is doing on the animal. And that alone helped me start making better shots on deer and like i said yeah. I, my heart was yeah. racing a million miles an hour i'm not the best shot with a bow but when you start when you stop worrying about that stuff and you're just worried about killing the animal that's exactly what ends up happening yep yeah yeah that i mean it's it's hard to buy confidence like that and and i mean if if you know if somebody literally said like hey you know you can you can like I don't want to say cure target panic because that's that's a completely different thing. But like you can you can solve like this part of your like shooting sequence by not even spending more money, just by spending money more wisely in the kind of equipment that you're putting, you know, into your into your quiver. Uh, you know, it really it changes it changes everything. So I know on on our end, um, when you did the episode uh with troy uh at ata uh and i know i i think i don't know if we were still in dallas when that happened 
but I, I think that we were. We always was, talked about it. Was, it. Yeah, I want to say that we were talking about it. Yeah, but I, I remember turning to uh, um, Garrett and Rob. I said, "Buckle up, because it's uh, about to get it's about to get wild." Because on on our end of things, we've been doing and talking about this kind of stuff for a while, especially in in our little hidden corners of uh, of the internet, where uh, only pointy hat people really really come and hang <laughs> out. Um, you know, and 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 so we've we've kind of been on this on this train for a while, uh, which is which, and, and that's not saying anything to brag, but but just putting into perspective that it's not uh, it's not a very huge community uh, that advocates for this kind of stuff, and and I know after you guys had Troy on, it just blew up on our end. I saw I've never oh, yeah. seen so many questions on and. Uh, on social media and people saying they were going to try different things. So what was the, like, what was the general like feedback when you guys uh, like started using this kind of equipment and just, and chatting about it a little bit more? Uh, When we first started, we were definitely a little apprehensive about it just because of the lack of experience. I mean, everything he was saying made total sense from our, from what we'd seen. And I mean, we have mountains of evidence of, and you know experiences with light arrows and and light mechanical broadheads Mm -hmm. i mean i'm talking dozens and dozens and dozens of hits on deer um lots and lots of slow motion video over the years of mature bucks getting shot with those types of setups so we had lots of experience in that realm and we when we sort of crossed over into the heavy stuff it was like man i don't really know what's gonna happen here it's like Right. I mean, you're just taking sort of a leap of faith that it's going to work based on what a few people are saying, but their logic made sense. And Troy was talking about getting arrows through animals. He was not given, he was not talking about the same old song and dance about shooting form and shooting at targets and practicing, you know, half breath out and all of this. You know, he's talking, he's talking and worried about, getting an arrow through an animal and right that was where all of his testing had been done and that's where ashby was also very interesting is because all of his research has been done on animals and i could care less about shooting dots at 60 yards on a range i don't care that's not me i mean right i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that um it doesn't but, equate to killing animals, though. No, I don't care. I mean, I don't care what kind of bow bow I got, what kind of setup I got. It don't matter how fast the stupid thing's going. When a big buck walks by at 20 yards, I want to be able to pull that thing back and anchor him. And that's, that's what I'm worried about, yep. which is what our whole group was kind of worried about, you know. So mm-hmm. all of this, all of his logic made total sense. So anyway, we jumped off. We got into the stuff little apprehensive about it at first because we didn't know nothing about sharpening broadheads, any of that. <laughs> so, today. Yeah. 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 I mean, we definitely were taking baby steps at first, just trying to ease into it. And that's why we didn't sure. want to, that's why we didn't want to put that podcast out immediately. It was like, let's try it ourselves and just be honest with people. Right. About it. Like, look, we don't have a ton of experience with this. The logic makes sense, but we're going to try it. And we're going to see if it works. Yeah. And then and then we film everything we do. So you guys will get to see if it works for us anyway. And so far it has. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. and now we've, we've built an, enough of an understanding about it and are still learning piles and piles of stuff nonstop. You oh, know, yeah, there's always something to, to learn. Oh, yeah. We have enough confidence in it now where we've started to talk about it a little bit more and sort of spread more information out there about it just for people that yeah. are that are having yeah, and, similar negative experiences like what we were having. I yeah. I'm glad that you guys took that route instead of like, you know, it happens all the time. As soon as people get a little taste of it and then they start broadcasting everything they think they've learned so far, but half of it's overnight right, experts. Not more. Yeah. <laughs> so it's nice. No, that, you gotta have, yeah. you gotta have data. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. nice that you guys actually had the forethought, which, you know, a lot of people, well, I mean, especially, you know, guys that are putting out a lot of content, like they don't always have that. Well, it's hard restraint. to hold back content. Yeah. You know, yeah. when, when you're trying to produce, it's hard to say, no, we're going to hold this off and we're not going to talk about this, even though it's probably going to be, you know, a, a large impact. And it th- that's a tough decision. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you guys asked a while ago, too, like, what did people say? How was it received? For the most part, 90% of the people that have watched it and sort of heard our opinions about the heavy arrow stuff have been, have agreed or they want to try it themselves or they have a bunch of questions about it, you know, because they're interested in it. There still is a small percentage. And there, there was from the get go that basically said, you know, that's blasphemy. That's all wrong. Oh, you don't need that. You don't (laughs) need that. I've killed yada, yada, yada. How many deer with whatever setup that I have. Yep my rage or whatever and well and and that's one thing a lot of people seem to struggle with is by us advocating for you know a little heavier arrow a little bit better broadhead you know just tougher setups we're not saying that the the industry standard stuff that people have been using doesn't work by no, no means are we saying that. We know that it can work. We're we're just saying that hey, this has a little bit better chance of working every time. Yep. Yeah, you're, I mean, I you're reducing the chance of failure. Absolutely. I basically just tell them like look at our experience. That's what we that's what most you know rational human beings base their decisions off of is yeah. their experiences. And that's the, it's like, guys, I used to shoot the same stuff, killed a bunch of deer using it. Like, yeah, it, it certainly worked for me, you know, some of the time. It also didn't some of the time for me. Right. So that's why right. I changed. And yep. like this, we make content and we're going to show people what we're using and why. I'm not going to tell yeah. you that this is what you have to use or you're a loser or something like that's stupid. <laughs> people jump off of, they just get they get too wound up about that stuff. It's like, man, if you got confidence in using something, just keep using it. If you really yeah, are, yeah. if you really have killed fifteen deer in a row with your three hundred eighty grain arrow or whatever, just keep doing it. It works. I don't care. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Sounds good. So yeah. no, I go ahead. One uh, question I did want to ask is. 
especially with you know how much experience you guys had how how i guess normal it was for you guys to be using arrows on the lighter end of the spectrum you know i I know that you had mentioned that you had kind of moved up into like the high 400s but good whitetail arrow as oh yeah i mean in my opinion around 500 with high teens for foc is a phenomenal whitetail arrow for for most people that's a phenomenal spot to you know dip your toes in and and if you want to settle there settle there it's it's great but what i was gonna kind of ask is as a group you know i know that you were kind of already dabbling a little bit heavier than normal but how was that transition for you guys were there any you know big hurdles everyone that hasn't shot a heavier arrow the first thing that always comes out of their mouth is well it's gonna fall on its face like i i have to be able to shoot you know 30 40 whatever 50 yards like actual hunting how you guys prep how big of an impact was it for you um very little helped if anything yeah right out of the gate it's like I, the first time I shot one of the I'm shooting Black Eagle Spartans now with 120 grain ethics insert in the end of it with a, about 150 grain point in the end of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and they're long arrows. So there's a lot of weight in the front. The first time I shot that thing, I barely heard the bow go off. Uh-huh. <laughs> isn't it it's a weird feeling isn't it it is yeah well and even th- even take a step back from there i used to shoot just a standard at the time it was like a blood sport carbon arrow back in 2013 2012 mm-hmm. 2012 2013 standard blood sport carbon arrow with your with your you know lightweight aluminum insert 100 grain point um whatever that weighs i mean it ain't 400 it's less yeah um, yeah even even as long an arrow as what i shoot with long drawing I shot those things out of my bow, and I noticed they were real fast. My bow was real loud, and I had issues with my accuracy just because it seemed like any little mistake that I made on the shot, the it would just be amplified, especially at distance with those arrows. I had a really right. hard time shooting tight groups with it. And I think that's why a lot of the – and I don't know. At the time, that's all I was hearing from experts was how to improve your shooting form and all of that stuff so that you could be more accurate with your shots you know and yes that would have that would have made sense for somebody shooting one of those super light arrows where even the smallest you know twitch of your hand will throw that thing off but i went from those things to full metal jackets in 125 grain heads you know i bumped up another 80 grains or so yep and boom you're at at 500 grains yep yep yeah, I'm just under 500, I think, or somewhere around there. When I, as soon as I did that, I noticed like, man, my bow got a lot quieter. That arrow <laughs> yeah. sounds quieter, yeah. and those things, this thing's way more forgiving to shoot. And I just started, I started grouping arrows tighter, especially at long distance, like at 40 and 50 yards. Mm-hmm. I was able to, you know, shoot like I always had, which is probably not the right way to do it. It's just how I grew up doing it. I mean, I shoot about half instinctive and I don't look at the pin. I look at the spot on the target where I want to hit and I just trust it. If it works, 
Go for it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how else to do it. I mean, that's I was taught to shoot a pie plate on, on the side of a hay bale from zero <laughs> to 30 yards when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And that, that and none of the shooting form stuff ever came up. It was just like, you got to shoot at that thing and put 10 arrows in a row in that pie plate for you to be able to go to the woods. It's like, yeah. are you and, consistent? Yep. Okay, good. Yep. My uncle's yeah. never said nothing about squeezing the trigger off or or squinting one eye, any of that. I don't know. <laughs> they just said, shoot that thing until you can hit it. And you ain't going to the woods <laughs> until it. you can. So and I the goal was to get to like, the woods. <laughs> yeah. That was it. That was it. So hundreds of arrows just yeah. going into the side of that hay belt. Anyway, um, I, I'll get back to my point here. Sorry, I've strayed down the rabbit hole. <laughs> You're good. You're good. Um, I went from that light blood sport arrow to the FMJs and then to those mm-hmm. arrows last year, which are approaching 600 grains. They might even be just over 600 grains. And yeah. at all three of those steps, I have noticed the same thing. My bow has gotten quieter. My shooting has got more accurate and my arrow flight has improved. Yep. And yeah. I don't know if that's the case across the board. That's just been my experience. But one thing that I've been true for me. One thing that I can point out from working with a lot of guys that have made this transition is when you're running, especially if you're if you're running higher energy bows, um, you know, you have higher poundage, longer draw length. When you're running really light arrows, the bow is snappy. And that's both in feel and in actual noise level. But that feel amplifies the perceived sound. And it's oh, almost sure. it's almost like being gun shy. Where, you know, yep. you you put someone that's never shot a, a big bore rifle and you know they're panicking, they're they're anticipating yep. that punch, right? And I, I honestly think that that is part of why people seem to get more consistent as they quiet their bow down. Because that that loud, just like crack of a super light arrow going off, going out of a bow, I think it mess it throws people off. And it, and you get a little twitchy. You start getting that twitchy finger on the trigger, and it just it makes everything a little jumpy. And and when you're anticipating like that, you're you're gonna probably move. You're you're gonna torque the bow a little bit. You're gonna drop your arm a little bit or move a little bit, and that all impacts your consistency. As things quiet down, the entire process gets calmer and smoother. And now you're not making those twitches. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, I feel like my bow doesn't want to jump out of my hand anymore. Yeah. Like it just, it, it used to, that's the way it used to feel. I don't know if that was actually what was happening or not. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, well, it's all, that, now it's that more vibration. Of that energy yeah. is yeah. going into the arrow because it has to. You know, that heavier mm-hmm, arrow mm-hmm. is soaking up more of the energy from the bow. So less of the bow energy is going into your hand. That's, yep. that's my interpretation of it anyway. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I think you're, I think you're hundred percent right on that. And I think you, you, you 
illustrated something really cool and i don't know if it was completely intentional or not but you, you kind of showed a <laughs> you kind of you showed a like a, a story there of like incremental like uh you know a moving, incremental change moving, yeah incremental change and moving in the direction that you knew like that you were going to end up at eventually and uh and i think that's what a lot of like turns off a lot of people and i, I know and that was when uh, after you guys did your episode with Troy and we saw the internet quite literally blowing up about this stuff, all these guys that shot super light arrows were like, you know, just ordered the, you know, a test kit with this and it's going to be a 750 grain arrow. And I was like, and like, I mean, uh, I'll, 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 anyone can shoot whatever they want. But at the same time, I was like, hold on, like pump the brakes for a minute. Like, have you ever shot a 500 grain arrow? They're like, well, no. I'm like, okay, well, like go like go to your local archery shop if you can, or like find a friend that has 500 grain arrow and make sure that you're even good with that trajectory. And, but I think that taking those things in those smaller steps makes it way easier for people. Cause I know that's how I was. I started with a, I mean, well, the majority of deer it, that it I've resets, shot have been. It, it resets your perception. Yes, absolutely. Every time that you acclimate to, you know, if you go from, from 350 to you know, in the 400s to the 500s to the 600s, every time that you reacclimate yourself to that new setup, that's your new normal. Yeah. And so now you make another jump and you're basing it off of that normal and not the old super light setup. Yeah. And so the perceived change isn't drastic. I mean, I didn't end up shooting what I'm shooting now overnight. Right. I, I literally took five years that every year I stepped up a little further because I I am very much a proponent of shooting as heavy as you're comfortable. And every year I was like, I'm still super comfortable. I can still shoot 100 yards if I want to, like for practice. Like, I'm going to keep bumping up. Right. And after like five years of doing that, I found a point that I went, nope. This is no longer comfortable. I'm going right. back over there. And if I had made that jump overnight, it would have been a completely different story. Yeah. So it's there there is definitely benefit to you know, especially if you're someone listening to this that your normal right now is something in the in the 300s or low 400s. Try something in the high 400s, low 500s. Yeah, 100 grains. You know, Add make a 100, 100 grain grains. jump, 100, 150, and, oh, yeah. and pl- settle into it. You're yeah. going to notice the differences that Aaron's mentioning. And then in a year or two, if you want to, you know, the next time you need arrows, if you go, you know what? I want to play with more. Okay, play with more. Now that's not going to be, you know, this gigantic step. Yeah. And you'll uh, learn a lot along the way. Have Well, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty comfortable with your setup, Aaron. Has anybody else decided to make any changes before this hunting season? Well, uh, Yeah, pretty fall. much everybody. Ted changed his <laughs> stuff when we were in Texas last week with uh, Ranch. And uh, Jake's kind of already on that, that same set up as i am something similar mm-hmm. anyway greg mm-hmm. has has slowly started to change his um and zach is looking into getting into it as well 
Zach's just been just not had the privilege like like Jake and Ted and I have of hanging out with Ranch um, mm-hmm. all the time. So he's right. easing into it a little bit. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine, perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys just uh I just saw the saw the YouTube video that you guys did with uh with Troy and uh and the um most recent podcast episode that you did with uh Troy and uh Rob Nielsen, which is really cool. Uh how how did that whole so I mean, long story short, you went down to Texas uh uh to Troy's ranch to be able to shoot some some pigs down there. How uh how'd that trip go? That was awesome. Had to go down there to the test lab and see it for ourselves. That's right. Um, it was great. I mean, the I'd say the single biggest takeaway that's on my mind right now after going down there is sharp broadheads. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was something I touched on real briefly earlier. But last fall, we used single bevels. Jake and I both did, and I know for a fact that neither one of us adequately sharpened those heads throughout the season and uh we killed several bucks with them they i don't think hardly uh, just a couple of them made it out of sight um and yeah all were pass-throughs what heads but were you using just for the listeners so they they know kind of what to look for a cutthroat 150 grain and he was using a grizzly stick alaskan or a grizzly stick maasai there you go nice. great heads good and, heads all uh, around yeah that we weren't getting much for blood trails, um, you know, and I don't really care about that if the animal's dead right there. It doesn't really matter. Right. Um, but that was the, that was kind of the number one gripe from people was, I mean, they, there were some folks that were apprehensive about the heavy arrow stuff, but they were more nervous about having poor blood trails with smaller cut on contact, smaller diameter cut on contact heads especially the single bevels. Mm-hmm. And I told Troy about that last fall. I'm like, and you know, this is the whole, this is part of the whole learning process for us. Um, it's like, Hey man, I just killed this buck with this single bevel and he died in a hundred yards. He didn't even know what hit him. It was, and it was buried in the dirt, like eight inches on the other side of him. So it blew through him. It did awesome penetration wise, but I didn't get much for blood trail. And he's like, well, they've got to be razor sharp. Are they razor sharp? And I was like, yeah, I think they are. But that's what opened my eyes up a little bit this last week when we were in Texas. I guess that's where mm. I'm going with this rabbit hole. Sorry. You sure. finally, yeah. finally learned, finally yeah. learned yes. what sharp was. We, as soon yeah. as I got there, he grabbed my cutthroats and he went to work on them um, <laughs> with, his, with his DMT diefold and his leather strop. And those things were like a mirror when he was done with them. And I had yep. not seen yep. them that sharp yet. And he did that to Jake's heads and Ted's and, and everybody's. And that pig that Jake shot that first night, he broke four ribs on a quartering away hit. And that broadhead blew yeah. clean through the pig and, uh, and into the dirt on the other side of him. And there was blood everywhere. And <laughs> he has said that over and over again. It makes a lot of sense because the same thing happened with Greg last fall. He sharpened the crap out of a 150 grain Magnus stinger and shot a buck and had tremendous blood trail. Now, I think a lot of people don't understand blood trails are very much dependent on the hit, the, the shot angle, 
Oh, yep. yeah. What the, what the broadhead comes in contact with, whether that's high, high blood pressure vessels or not. It, there's so many other factors involved other than just the size of the stupid hole. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. But the one thing that you can control is the sharpness of your broadhead. And I have not mm-hmm. paid enough attention to that in recent years. And I saw it work in Texas. If you haven't experienced like truly sharp equipment, it's it's hard to to evaluate. Yeah, right. Because I just don't know because what, what's like, your oh, baseline? Right. You're like, oh, it's sharp. You know, I, I can cut myself on it. Like it's sharp. Exactly. That's and, where and I was then at. and then you you know you go and see something that's truly sharp. Like you go chat with a butcher. If you want to see sharp knives oh, yes. or see how yeah. to sharpen, go chat with a butcher. Yeah. Those, every blade in that shop is going to be pristine because yep. that's how they do their work. If that blade's not sharp, you're not efficient. And so, like, even if you don't know anyone personally, you know, to get an idea or even just about, you know, ask someone about sharpening. Most butcher shops offer sharpening services. And if you're friendly enough with them, they'll probably give you some pointers yeah, on how how to, how to do it and maybe what the process that you would try. Yeah. It, it makes a huge difference. Well, I'll tell you, he sharpened them. He sharpened every one of our heads either on a jig or by hand. Yep. And we killed five pigs in three days, and on every single one of them, the blood trails were not an issue. There was plenty of it. And yeah. they and died quick, and it was just amazing to see the performance of those heads and how sharp that they were um, yeah, in comparison like, to the heads we were shooting last fall. And wild pigs, honestly are can can be tougher for blood trail because oh, yeah. of how much you know how much so caked much on mud in the hair yeah. like there's a lot there to to soak up and absorb the blood that is coming out so to get good blood trails on pigs that's saying something oh it's like they're they're wearing flak jackets i mean yeah, yeah. it really is that's what it's like there, I mean, it's a wall of stuff that you got to go through just to get into the very small vital area on a pig. Yeah. And the, um, yeah, I mean, just seeing the performance of those razor sharp heads. If, if, if nobody takes away hardly anything from the whole heavy arrow and cut on contact broadhead thing, if you don't want to go down that route, I can tell you the, even if even if I change over the years, the one thing that's probably going to stay consistent from this point forward is sharp broadheads, super yeah. super sharp broadheads, because that I there's a direct correlation. And Troy told me that last fall. He's like, I'm telling you, I've seen dozens and dozens of these pigs get shot with inferior stuff and then razor sharp heads, and there is a direct correlation to the blood trails and the distance that the animals are going with razor sharp broadheads. Yep, 
I would I would agree. Well, cool. It sounds like uh, so we saw the one video come out. So it sounds like there's going to be some some more content coming out from your time uh, down in Texas then. Yeah, we'll have another video Sunday um, with three pig kills in it, I think. Nice. And uh, yeah, we did. We also filmed the video on um, animals and how they react to mm-hmm. the sound of the shot and the arrow in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a pretty interesting one. And then we filmed that uh, podcast with Rob as well. So we may take some oh, nice. pieces of that and post cool. that. And we also filmed Ted and Jake's um, arrow tuning setups with Troy. Ted's oh, nice. I mean, today his video is going to be real short because it took him like 30 minutes to get his figured out. <laughs> he was shooting just... It's amazing... Cool absolute darts but jake's took a little more yeah work yeah well it's amazing how much a, a little work like that can make all the difference in the world it's like you know 30 30 minutes away from having aero flight like that it's you know like why why wouldn't you do it sooner if you could sure yeah yeah well cool well uh uh rob garrett uh, uh anything else we we want to pull out of aaron while we've got him here no i think we uh covered a lot of it yeah no i mean i'm 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 pumped that you guys are using uh this kind of stuff i think it's great and as i'm sure you've uh i don't uh i don't know what other conversations you may have had with rob but uh um uh, the podcast you did with him was was great and, and he may have told you you know the wound loss rate uh, according to the texas parks and wildlife is abysmal it is a terrifyingly high number for how many animals are lost uh, uh, due to a bow and arrow. And I, I, I truly think that when uh, influencers like you guys, uh, uh, you know, talk about this kind of stuff and stuff that's been scientifically backed with, you know, over 30 years of research that it's going to make a, a huge impact uh, to the bow hunting community. It's going to make a huge impact to how people perceive bow hunters. And, uh, and, you know, we'll be able to say like, Hey, like, look at these things that we're doing, uh, to, to improve this wound loss rate. And, and man, I'm, I'm just, I'm so happy that you guys are, uh, are on board and, and looking at this kind of stuff and talking about it. I think it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, uh, an incredible thing, uh, for years to come. All, all thanks to you guys just being open-minded and, and willing to have a conversation. I think it's going to be, I mean, super helpful going forward that you know like people will start to see that pass-throughs are normal instead of you know the vast majority of the tv hunting shows you see three quarters of the arrow hanging out and the guys are like smoked them it's like well i mean did you though yeah but yeah i mean with your guys's content coming out especially if the heavy stuff works it's going to be good to just have people see it and be like oh wait that's that can happen all the time yeah Hmm. exactly yeah that's right we're gonna try <laughs> good oh, we'll keep keep we're, keep on we're looking on. forward to to following along yeah absolutely thanks guys so appreciate so aaron, yeah yeah aaron so where where can people find your content uh youtube and podcasts and website and all that fun stuff uh all things the hunting public um we're also on amazon prime so nice. You can oh nice yeah I, you know what i feel like i well. always forget about that yeah that's awesome. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, cool. Well, uh, Aaron, I really appreciate you coming on and, and chatting with us. Uh, you know, like I, uh, we, we mentioned earlier before we were recording, it's been a long time coming. Uh, glad we were able to finally get it worked out and get this recorded. And 
uh, like I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited that, you know, uh, people like you are talking to the Ashby bow hunting foundation to, to kind of bring light to this kind of, uh, this kind of conversation. So really appreciate you doing, doing that and coming on, hanging out with us. So, uh, for, uh, everyone still listening, appreciate you hanging out and until next time, stay lethal, disrupt the status quo.